The uh, Apostle writes in 1 John 3 and verse 1. If we could have it up on the overhead, please. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Our theme for this morning is God's adoption of us and Him making us His children. This is the uh, second talk in this new series that we're doing here at our 10 a.m. service. The series is called uh, Belong, Your Place in the Family of God. Uh, and this morning, uh, this talk follows on from last week's talk where if you were here, you would have heard John speak about how God is a relational God. How in his being, he is father and son and spirit and that he operates in relationships of love that he draws us into as well. And in fact, that is the heart of ultimate reality, a God who is relational. If you take the Bible as being a true account of what's what and you look at what he's revealed, then we're not sitting on a disc on the back of an elephant riding on a giant turtle through space. We are not the byproduct of a war between the gods. We are not even an accident that exploded out of nowhere and just happens to be in exactly the right balance to let life continue on the speck of a planet that we live on. What God shows us in his word, if you trust it, is that he is at the center. A relational and purposeful and loving and good God who creates and who sustains us all by his power, by his will and his word. And if that's true, how do you go about relating to a God like that? What kind of relationship is there between God and us? Because if he's real and he's there and he's relational, he doesn't just wind us up and let us go like some sort of toy. If he's actually present and concerned and wanting to relate, then just by virtue of who he is, your relationship with this God might be the most significant thing that you might want to be paying attention to. How do you go about relating to God? You've well, you got to do it on his terms, don't you? When I was in school, when I was starting high school, going from year six into year seven, like so many of our kids did this last month, I was a local boy going from Penny Hills Public to Penny Hills High School. And many of you know I've got an older brother, uh, Joe, who's a few years ahead of me at school, and he was in year 10 when I was just starting year seven, going to the same school. So I was the kid brother moving on to uh, his turf. And I don't know what it was like at your school, but at Penno, once you find your spot in your playground, you're basically there for six years. Uh, recess and lunch, you basically stay there with your group for the next six years of your life until, unless something dramatic happens and you have to move groups. And as it turned out, my group settled in a spot just a little bit away from where uh, Joe's group was, within eye distance. I'd met some of his friends before. I think we were on pretty good terms. But you put yourself in my brother's shoes for a moment. Your kid brother is coming to your school. And you, being the older one, you have the power, you have the right to dictate how we relate to each other in the playground, don't you? If you want nothing to do with your annoying kid brother and his rude and equally annoying friends, then that's how it's going to go down. What you do is you, you sit down, your brother at home, and you say, Johnny, I love you, you're my brother, and I'll even sometimes walk to school with you, but as soon as we get to school... I don't want you anywhere near me. Leave me alone. 
Go find somewhere else to sit, for goodness sake. Get out of my quad. He could have done that. He probably should have done that, because me and my friends were idiots. But he was a good brother. Still is. And for those few years uh, we were at school together, he kept the door open for relationship. He even let me become friends with some of his friends, but he's, he's generous like that. And it certainly felt like a privilege to me. And you know at work as well, your boss gets to set the terms of his relationship or her relationship with you, don't they? They can be as friendly with you as they want to be. It's not up to you to tell them what's what and how you're going to relate. That's what it's like when you're in relationship where there's this disparity in power. The one who's got the power sets the terms of the relationship. And the four-year gap between me and my brother is nothing compared to the infinite gap between me and God. Yes, God is a relational God, but he has to be the one who sets the boundaries for our, our relationship. He is the one who chooses to reveal himself. He is the one who lets me know him on his terms. And so, what would you imagine that relationship between him and us to be like? What does he allow for his creature as a creator? Do you imagine submission and servitude? That's our lot. Would it be like in so many world religions where if you're religious, you're basically a servant to some great divine being. He's the boss, you're the servant, you're the slave. He gives the orders and it's our job to go and do them. And if you obey all the rules, if you dot all your I's and cross all your T's, then you might just make God happy enough to throw you a bone from time to time and make life go well for you. Is that, is that how God has set things up? I remember being in Taiwan with Christine Dillon, one of our missionaries, one of our storytellers, church planners, authors and trainers. Uh, we were down with Chris in the town where she works and she was showing us all these temples. The town she's in is full of temples and the temples were full of statues and full of people eager to relate to the divine and relate with their ancestors who'd long passed. And actually what they wanted was desperately for their gods and their ancestors to answer their prayers and to give them what they want. You see it on the faces of people walking into the temple. They're not, they're not happy, smiling faces like yours are when you're standing up to sing praises to God. Now, most of the faces I saw at the temple were faces of people fulfilling a duty, serious faces, people with faces who are in need and downcast and desperate on the way in and the same on the way out. And so they come with offerings, Costly gifts, paper money and all sorts of things to appease and to satisfy their gods and their ancestors. And they'd leave those gifts and they'd leave their prayers. Some of their prayers were written down and you'd pin them on this spot in the prayer wall. Hoping that someone was listening. And that if you'd offered enough offerings and sacrifices, you might manage to somehow twist a spiritual arm of some deity to give you what you're after. Or at least you appease them enough so that they don't mess with you. But our place in the family of God is not like that, is it? We aren't some slave or some servant trying to curry favor with our master. Our reading in Galatians today says, and this will come up on the screen, in Christ, you are all children of God, children of God through faith. Well, just a little further down in verse 4, it says this, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. See, God's not just relational. The kind of relationship that's possible is that in Christ, God makes us his children, his son. And it's those two little words you see up there, in Christ, that's the key to it all. Uh, This way of describing Jesus in him makes him sound like a, a location, a place that you can be in, a container even. Or in verse 27, it talks about Jesus as clothes that you can envelop yourself with. So that if you're in this place, whatever happens to this place happens to you because you're wrapped up in it. And all the status and privileges of Christ are applied to those who are in him, enveloped with him. And it sounds like a good place to be. How do you get there? How do you get in Christ? Can you earn your way in with a mountain of offerings and sacrifices and your gifts to God? Do you just try hard and and try to be good enough? No, verse 26 says, it is through faith. Through you trusting and depending on God to do for you what he says he will. And that's it. Trusting and depending on God to do for you what he says he will do for you. That's what faith is and that's the way in. There's a couple of things that come with being in Christ. One is his spirit. If you look at verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6 in Galatians. Because you are his son, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. We have the spirit of God in our hearts teaching our consciences and convicting us of sin and doing his work of transforming us from the inside out. And most importantly here, what the spirit does is it teaches us to relate to God as Abba, Father. And you might already know this bit of Bible trivia. Abba is a really familiar way of addressing your father in the Aramaic language. It could be translated into English as something like uh, daddy, papa. I don't know what your familiar term for your dad is. It's like how a toddler would address his dad before jumping into his arms. And the spirit now living in us teaches us to instinctively call out to God with that same level of familiarity and affection and access. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called his children. The other thing that comes with being in Christ is an inheritance. If you look at verse 7, Galatians 4 verse 7. So you are no longer a slave but God's child, and since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Now, it speaks to the generosity of God the Father who would share what's his with his children. But I don't know if our normal ideas of inheritance go far enough to capture just how big this thought is. Because normally you get an inheritance when, when someone's passed away. But God is eternal. And everything belongs to God. Everything, of, everything that's ever been is God's. So being an heir in this family is a massive deal, even though I don't know how all the details will pan out. There's one more thought I want to draw your attention to in this passage about God adopting us into his family, and it's to do with how we're supposed to relate to each other. 
now that God's brought us together into this one family. Now that we're brothers and sisters in him because we share the same father, we're, we're family. And in how we relate to each other, Galatians 3 verse 28 says this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That the world would see the mystery and the legacy and the power of the church. Not in our assets and in our architecture, but in our love for one another. There's been too much conflict in our world, as you well know, over ethnicity. So much racism and blood spilled because of it. There continues to be too much conflict in our world because uh, of the conflicts between the haves and the haves-nots. And as you know, the, the, the fight continues, the war continues between the genders. For centuries, men have abused their power over women in oppressive patriarchal systems, and that's not cool. But I'm not sure if the answer to that is feminism either, because what I see is what starting as a desire for equality ends up expressing itself in winning at the expense of the other. And that just, to me, seems like another way to continue the war. It doesn't lead to peace. But in Christ, we are one. The old saying you might have heard in church circles, that the ground at the foot of the cross is very flat. And the normal social barriers and lines we'd like to draw uh, to demarcate ourselves from others, whether it's ethnicity or whether it's gender or whether it's our status and our wealth, those things don't count for much in Christ at all. It doesn't matter where you were born, whether you're a man or a woman, how wealthy you are or not wealthy you are. Those things count for nothing. Because in Christ, it's through faith. It's through faith that we're children of God and He's made us one. Now, let's just not keep saying nice-sounding things in theory, but practically speaking, what does that mean? Especially this last point about how we're meant to relate to each other in this family. I think we've got to find ways of expressing our oneness in Christ, our being brought into this one family together. We've got to express that oneness, and the best way you do that is, I think, with your local expression of church. For many of you, uh, that's here with one another. But on a Sunday morning, it is admittedly quite difficult to relate to each other as brother and sister, especially with everybody who's here. There's just so many bodies, so many people to relate to. And no family that I know, no family gathering that I have been to is this big. The structured formal time we have together, uh, between, what, 10 and 11, 15, that, that's fine. We get to express our oneness in Christ when we sing. We express our oneness in Christ when we pray and when we read the Bible together. Uh, when we do things like we teach our kids and we, we do the Lord's Supper and we have baptisms and we do infant dedications, even when we do uh, decision-making together in our business meetings. That's our expression of our being one in a big formal sense. But I know once the closing song happens, like it will in a moment, and morning tea happens, there's a massive crush in that next room over there. And the noise levels go through the roof. And so if you're particularly sensitive to that, it's hard to have a decent conversation, let alone you know, if you've got kids to run after, if you've got other places to be. It's so easy to be lost, even here on a Sunday morning. So yeah, with this many of us, morning tea time after the service is no walk in the park, unless you're, unless you're a really strange sort of extrovert, and that really gets you going. 
But maybe what we can do is to help help each other and help manage it all by being on the lookout for each other. Can I encourage you to keep your brain on once the song finishes and to just be aware of what's going on around you. Open up. Look for opportunities to cross some of the normal boundaries that keep us from talking to each other. Be much more aware. Be armed with the knowledge that you have the most significant thing in your life in common with the people around you. That you've both put your faith in Christ. That you've both been adopted by God. And when you're with other Christians like we have in this morning, retrain yourself and let that be your starting point. Your oneness in Christ. And go from there instead of straight away noticing all the difficulties and the apparent barriers that might be between you. There's nothing worse than standing in a room full of people and still feeling lonely. Especially when these are your people. This is your family. And there's so many squandered moments of mutual encouragement that we could otherwise have. But what I generally encourage everyone to be involved with is a small group, actually. It doesn't matter if you meet on a weekday or fortnightly on a weekend, but having a smaller group of people to share more deeply with maybe a more manageable structure for us. You need people in your life to read the Bible with and to pray with you and to express this great reality that actually you are brothers and sisters in Christ. Co-heirs of an eternal inheritance who get to regularly encourage each other to press on. Whether you find that in a small group or a ministry group that you're a part of or some one-to-ones that you can set up, you've got to keep encouraging each other to press on and to open up somewhere. And if you're not part of a group at the moment, maybe you've never been part of a small group, let me tell you there are a ton of different groups meeting at the moment. They're all about to start up now, different times and days of the week. Uh, let me know if you would like to join a group. I reckon I'll be able to find something that's suitable for you. You'll even see a new one advertised today in the, um, in, in the bulletin. Praise God for his grace to us. Praise God for taking us in who were his enemies. Not just to make us his friends, but more than that, he's adopted us in Christ, into his family, to be his sons and his daughters. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great and we are small. You are infinitely wise and we we make poor choices all the time. But we're so humbled and grateful that you would pour out your love on us and make a way for us in Christ to become your children. Our desire is that our lives might be for your glory. Father, would you take us and use us, change us as you will. Particularly help us to love one another, overcome our prejudices and insecurities because, Father, we want to learn to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.